What's up, Central? We're so glad that you've tuned in to this online experience, or maybe you're listening to this via podcast uh, later this week, or even even weeks or years from now. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Hey, I want you to know a couple of things. We, we are kicking off this fall ministry season and, and kicking off a new series uh, next week uh, through the book of Philippians. And we've, we've labeled this, this first series uh, through the book of Philippians, Joy. And uh, I don't know if you could use a little bit more joy in your life right now. I know I sure could. Uh, so I'm excited for this, this new series. I hope you'll come back and uh, tune back in next week as we kick off, off that study. Well, they say confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. But by way of introduction, here's a confession. It was the summer of 2012 when my life just hit a wall. Uh, I had launched a, a new, new campus with a, a church that I was a part of uh, in the Midwest, and things were, things were going great. I mean, we were seeing hundreds of people uh, getting saved and putting their faith in Jesus. We saw hundreds of people uh, getting baptized, and from a ministry standpoint, everything on paper was looking great. Uh, but m- my marriage, uh, we were struggling. Uh, we just had our, our first child, and and honestly, with Tiffany's schedule and trying to build out her career and, and me trying to prove myself in ministry, we were just torn with who's taking Cannon to daycare, who you got him, no, you got him, no, you got him, and wasn't what I envisioned as a dad. To top it all off, the board called me into their office in July of 2012 um, to let me know that my lead pastor, the pastor I'd served under, uh, to begin my experience in ministry and had been my pastor uh, for several years, had committed a moral failure and had, uh, had, had an affair. And with that came a lot of ripple effects to the ministry. Um, we ended up having to reconsolidate campuses. We ended up having to make deep budget cuts. We ended up uh, had to look people in the eyes. We laid off 25 staff members in one day. I just turned 30 years old and I thought, I thought I was having a heart attack. And so to my shame, I went to the doctor to say like, I, I think my heart's not working. Well, I know I'm young. I, I look healthy, but something's not right. And the doctor said, Tim, what you're having is not a heart attack, but you've been having small panic attacks. And he said, your heart's healthy, but you're depressed and battling anxiety. That was my first real experience, what often is called mental health. And regardless of what your experience with mental health has been, I think all of us to varying degrees have experienced some levels of depression over these past 18 months. Here's what the data is is currently showing us on how our mental health is as a society. Uh, The mental health hotline went up 900% in 2020. The CDC reported that four, uh, one out of four young people, and they classify young people as anyone uh, of the age of 30 years old and under. So, so one out of four young people, which by the way, that age group I find offensive because like I'm kind of young, right? But not according to the CDC. Uh, one out of four young people, 30 years old and under, have com- uh, considered suicide, ending it all. One out of 10 adults have considered suicide this past year. Divorce rates went up 25%. Prescription and antidepressants went up 300% in 2020. While navigating a global pandemic, another pandemic has surfaced. 
And I think it's something not just for the world to figure out. I think it's something for us, the church, to have a voice and help people navigate. Uh, this Initially, I was thinking this could be a five-part series uh, as we launch into the fall. Uh, but with, with joy coming and, and some overlapping in, in content, I thought, I thought, why not just give you five weeks worth of content in one message? And so uh, buckle up, hope it might grab some popcorn, get comfortable. Um, a lot of content going to be coming at you. Uh, on our website, you can follow along on the message notes. And again, because of uh, the width and depth of content, I encourage you to take some notes uh, today and you can reference these, these later and maybe look up a couple things. Also, I also want you to know uh, I've gotten some of this uh, from this book out of the cave. So some of the content I'll be sharing is from Chris Hodge's work uh, in his book out of the cave. Uh, in the notes, there's some resources and suggestions if you want to do more study on this, this topic. But we're going to be looking at the life of a guy by the name of Elijah. Uh, but before we get there, before we jump into the Bible, I want to just give a couple, couple qualifiers as we tiptoe into a, an intense and passionate topic uh, that impacts a lot of people. Uh, the first qualifier I would like to make is that uh, uh, there are some very real biological and genetic things that cause mental illness. Uh, in other words, I, I'm, I'm saying it's not just because of an intense season uh, or going too hard for too long, that, that causes mental health for everyone. It's not just an 18 months of experiencing pandemic that, that causes mental health issues for, for everyone. Uh, I believe that there are some genetical and biological realities that impact our minds. And, and we just need to be aware of that. But I also want to say, if we let genetics and biology have the whole narrative on this topic, some of you watching this will miss freedom that God has for you. Second qualifier I would just like to make before jumping into this, this topic is that there are some very real stigmas around this, this idea of mental health. And, and I would just like to say, like, you know, as you can see, I'm, I'm wearing glasses. Uh, these, I wear these glasses uh, because there's an organ in my body that is not functioning at the capacity that it should it, 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 but because I'm wearing these, these glasses, uh, I don't think any of you, whenever you saw me for the first time, thought, wow, I think that guy, he must have sin in his life. He's wearing a pair of glasses. Uh, I think maybe, maybe there's some things going on behind the scenes that, that would cause that organ to not function, function properly. Like no one's questioning why I'm wearing glasses. Everyone understands that there's an organ in my body not functioning as it should. Therefore, I've chosen to seek professional help so that I can see more clearly. And I would just say this, that the mind is an organ in the body. And sometimes the best next step is to get some professional help to help it function at its optimal capacity. And so people who struggle with mental illness uh, should not be viewed any differently uh, than a guy like me who wears these glasses on an ongoing basis. Uh, I would also say this, if you do struggle with mental illness, and, and again, to varying degrees, all of us do, uh, I, I think this is important. But first note, if you're taking notes, follow along with us. Here it is. My illness is not my identity. If you struggle with mental illness, it is not your identity. Your identity is a son or daughter of God. Your, your illness, does, mental illness does not 
define you. What I'm feeling is often an indicator of what I'm struggling with at the moment, but it is not my identity. And so let's see what, what does the Bible have to say about this. And let me just give you the end at the very beginning. And my personal belief is that God wants you to be free. That, that doesn't mean that you won't struggle. That doesn't mean that you leave this service and throw your glasses in the trash can. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Uh, but I believe at the core of who we are, my, my hope for everyone watching this online experience today or listening to this is that you would know God that you would grow in freedom, that we would actually take action steps. All of us today, we have action steps to take that would lead to more freedom. Let's be people who grow in freedom, show our purpose, go change the world. Galatians 5.1 says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Now, freedom is what God has for you, but that doesn't mean that there, there still won't be struggles. What I love about the Bible is it's not rainbows and unicorns. It's not all, all pie in the sky, happy clappy. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the book of the Bible was written by inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit through the hand of imperfect people in progress. People who, some people who wrote the Bible were very jacked up. Uh, liars, murderers, adulterers, and yes, some very depressed people pinned scriptures. One of them was a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And not only did, did Jeremiah write the book of Jeremiah, he also wrote the book of Lamentations. A, a whole book of lament, a whole book about all that's wrong, really. Here's what he says in Lamentations 3, 17 through 20. He says, I have been deprived of peace. You ever felt that way? I have forgotten what prosperity is. In other words, nothing in my life's going right. My marriage isn't going right. My kids, it's not going, my job is not, it's not going right. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped for from the Lord He's like, even God's not, this is not helping me right now. I don't know what's going on. I remember my affliction and my wondering, the bitterness and gall. Like he's remembering all that's wrong. He's mulling over all these things that have, have gone wrong in his mind. And here's the results. Well, I, I remember them well. And so my, my soul is downcast within me. I mean, it's no surprise mulling over all that's wrong that Jeremiah experienced different levels of depression when you think about depression, you think about someone who, who loves God, like, no, nah, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't experience. No, a prophet, a prominent prophet experiences. This is his experience. As we go to the New Testament, we're going to read about, um, we can read letters from the guy named Paul. Matter of fact, our next series is, is a letter penned by this guy named Paul to the church at Philippi, the church of uh, the, the book of Philippians. But Paul struggled. In 2 Corinthians uh, 1.8, he wrote this. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we've experienced in the providence of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. And just side note here, some well-intentioned people will often say in church space and, and sound very spiritual that God will never give you more than you're able to endure. But that wouldn't be a true biblical statement because Paul says, no, I experienced, it was beyond my ability to endure. So much so that I was ready to give up. I despaired of life. We despaired of life itself. 
So not only did Jeremiah and, and the Apostle Paul struggle, uh, but there's a guy, a prophet in the Old Testament, I think the greatest prophet named Elijah. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today, looking at the life of Elijah. And I, I say Elijah was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament because heaven elevated Elijah to the degree that whenever Jesus took his, his three favorite disciples, Peter, James, and John, to the mountain of transfiguration, who appears there? It's Moses and Elijah. They appear in their heavenly, heavenly bodies, these glorified bodies. I say that to say, not only does, does heaven evaluate, elevate him, uh, but, but man, we see the miraculous signs and wonders that God did through Elijah that, that I think just makes him the greatest prophet of all time. And, and free side note, by the way, James says Elijah was a man just like just like you, so God can use you in the same way. But we're also susceptible to the same challenges or similar challenges that Elijah, Elijah faced. And so, um, uh, yeah, so just kind of set the stage. Elijah's, uh, really some of his, his crashes, his greatest crash mentally comes on the heels of some of his greatest spiritual victories. It's a fascinating. In one chapter, in, 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 in Kings, Second Kings, or sorry, First Kings 18, um, we, we see Elijah do some crazy things. God showed up in dynamic fashion. Two miracles in one chapter. The first is this, Elijah faces off against the prophets of, of Baal and Asherah. And, and here's what takes place. Uh, the, the prominent, uh, the religion of the land, like the, this king and his wife Jezebel said, no, everyone in this land is going to worship this false god named Baal. And they had, had 850 prophets, like spiritual leaders of this false religion. And then Elijah, like trying to represent God and his people. And so they have this standoff on this, this mountain called Mount Carmel. And you can go to Israel and still see it there today. But here's, here's kind of the parameters they set. They said, hey, we're going to sacrifice a, a, an animal, a cow, and whichever God shows up in fire and consumes the animal by fire, that's the true God. And so Elijah's there and these prophets of Baal are like cutting themselves and Elijah's poking fun, like maybe your God's like on a bathroom break. What's going on? I don't know. And Elijah's like, hey, I'll up the ante. He dumps water on, on, the, on this sacrifice that fire is supposed to consume. The, the, the false prophets do their thing. Then Elijah comes up, dumps water, says a prayer and fire from heaven, boom, consumes the sacrifice and all the water like crazy, mind-boggling, out-of-this-world miracle. The very next scene is Elijah praying for a, a, a drought to stop. Elijah had told this pagan king at the time, hey, you're going to experience, because of your rebellion, three years of drought, no rain. And economic collapse, terrible stuff happened. And so after this victory, uh, Elijah sends word to this king, hey, I'm going to pray and rain's about to come. And sure enough, that's what happens. Elijah prays, rain comes. I'm saying two outstanding miracles. One chapter, one chapter in the Bible. And then here's what happens next. Here's the next scene. First Kings 19, verses one through four. And it says this. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. And what did he, he do? Everything we just, just talked about, how he killed all the prophets. He, after the fire consumed the sacrifice, Elijah, he put him to the sword. He killed all the prophets. So Jezebel sent messenger uh, to Elijah to say this. Now, 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 just pause. Like He didn't send an assassin to Elijah. He sent a messenger saying, I'm going to send an assassin for what you did. 
And I, it, it's funny to me, like this man who God uses in profound, powerful ways now gets like a, a text message and he goes sideways. He, he gets like an email. It's like the sky's falling. And here's the message he received. It says, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow uh, I do not make you like one of them. And so this was the comment on his Facebook page that day. And so Elijah was afraid, ran for his life. He went to Beersheba in Judah, which, uh, random side note, that, that's where Elijah, we don't have time to talk about, but that's where Elijah, where God called Elijah to ministry. He got into ministry there. He goes back there to turn in his resignation came to Beersheba and he left his servant there. Why? Because you don't need a staff when you're leaving the ministry. While he went by himself a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came to a broom bush and sat under it. And under it, he prayed that he might die. And I'm guessing to some degree, all of us have prayed or said words like Elijah's about to say here. And here's what he says. I've, I've had enough. I've had enough. I can't, I can't do this anymore. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. We're going to look at six things that Elisha did, and we do too, that lead us into caves of of depression, that that tie our minds in in knots. And and honestly, in my experience uh, with this and and talking to other people and reading, uh, a lot of times depression feels like that, feels like a cave. I mean, it's, it's cold, it's dark, it's isolating. It's disorienting. Like, you know, there's a way out. You just don't know how to get there. And also, you know, like there's bats flying around. They could swoop in on you at any time. Like it's, it's scary. And I think for many of us, we can lead ourselves there. We can lead ourselves into caves of depression. Not everybody. Some people, I get it. Like some people, sometimes medication is necessary because the organ isn't functioning properly. Uh, I have a, a dear friend, uh, he's a pastor. I talk to him often. Uh, we've known each other for 20 years, a man of integrity. This dude loves God like nobody else I know. Like he, he's, he's a man of great faith. But man, he's, he's just struggled in his marriage. He's struggled at work. He's been worked up about a variety of things. And it was this summer that he went and saw a psychiatrist and put him on some, some prescription medication. And, and he said this, he's like, Tim, it's like the wires have been put together for the first time in my life. He, he said, he, he described it in this way. It's like, it's like there's a whole new world that's opened up to me. He's like, it's not like I'm, I'm all doped up all the time and I'm numb to everything. He's like, no, I'm, I'm able to function at a higher capacity in my church. My marriage has gotten better. And so I say that to say, I know sometimes medications required, but I think there's, there's a lot of things that we do to ourselves that lead us into caves of depression and anxiety. And I think there's some things we can do this week to live in freedom. And so, so how, how do we end up in the cave? How do we end up in the cave of, of depression and anxiety? Uh, here's, here's five things I'm going to give you that, that, that leading psychologists and psychiatrists, neurologists say, this is the one of the, some of the primary causes of depression in our society today. Uh, the first is this, life imbalances. Life imbalances. 
uh, Johan Hari, he, he has a TED talk on, on mental health and mental illness, has over 11 million views. He said this, he says, we should talk less about chemical imbalances and start talking more about life imbalances. More and more experts, researchers are pointing to our lifestyles as a leading cause of anxiety and depression than our biology. Neurologists, psychiatrists, counselors, uh, psychologists, sociologists now conduct that depression and its partner anxiety most often are the result of our out-of-balanced lifestyles. And you notice what Elijah how his crash came at the end of these, these major victories. And in the church space, we focus on the miracles, right? God rained down fire on Mount Carmel. Like Elijah killed 850 prophets. Like Elijah goes and he intercedes and he's, he's praying. It didn't happen just immediately. He had to keep praying, keep leaning in. And, and God sent rain into the drought, which is awesome. But we don't talk a lot about is the output that took from Elijah, the mental output, the spiritual output, the physical output that, that Elijah exerted in those miracles. And the next thing we see is a crash. Life was out of balance. Stephen Lardy, he wrote a book called The Depression Cure. And he says this, he says, we were never designed for the sedentary, indoor, socially isolated, fast food laden, sleep deprived, frenzied pace of modern life. <laughs> that, that, that pretty much sums up the lifestyle most of us have, right? Sedentary, behind a computer all day, indoors most of the time, socially isolated. We got to go grab something fast because you got to go here, I got to go here. Let's just grab something and go. Sleep deprived, not sleeping well. Frenzied pace of modern life. He says, you're not, you weren't, you weren't wired for that. And for some of us, I mean, Really, for all of us, to varying degrees, we experience this. So what's the solution? Possible solutions, Ecclesiastes 4, 6. It says this, better is a handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after, after the wind. Better one handful with tranquility. Better one job with peace of mind. Better, 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 better to say no to that opportunity. It's an honor that they invited you to be part of that leadership team. It's an honor they invited you to be a part of that circle. But maybe it's better to have one handful with some tranquility and peace of mind than two handfuls chasing after a win. This is, this is very countercultural because we always think more's better, right? If, if you have $1, $2 is, is better, you eat one donut, like two donuts, it's, it's just better. You have one car, that's great, but two cars is, is better. You have one wife, but two wives, no, 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 don't, we're not doing that. But a lot of times it's our life in balance uh, that leads us into these, these caves of depression. Um, and so, so I would just invite you to take some inventory as we go through these. How are you doing? How's your life balance? And if you find yourself in a dark place, maybe it's time to examine that area of your life. And so, so how are you with your, your, your life balance? Second, how are you doing with comparing ourselves with others? This is one of the things that psychologists say, say is causing this pandemic of, of mental illness is that we are always constantly comparing ourselves with others. Listen to what Elijah said. He said, said take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Well, his ancestors have nothing to do with this. Like Elijah's not accountable for his ancestors and neither are you. 
but we compare ourselves with everyone around us. It was Theodore Roosevelt who said this, comparison is a thief of joy. Social media forces us to compare our messy behind-the-scenes life with everyone's front-stage perfection. It leads to a, a sense of inadequacy. It leads to us feeling like we're not enough, that we never measure up. And comparison is stealing our joy. If Theodore Roosevelt was here, he'd probably say, social media is the thief of all joy. <laughs> just, just thought to consider. When's the last time you were scrolling social media for, for an hour or whatever, and by the time you got done scrolling, you thought, you know what? I think I have more of the fruit of the Spirit in my life right now. I'm experiencing more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more goodness, more kindness, more faithfulness, more self-control. If you're like me, it hasn't happened. And for that matter, like, when's the last time you watched the news? CNN, Fox News, whatever you watch, it doesn't matter. When's the last time you watched the news and you're like, you know what? I feel a whole lot better about life now. That was great. That was a great investment of my time. But we compare where we are with, what, with the fear and with the, the anxiety that the, the media is pushing on us. And then we wonder why we don't have joy. We, we wonder why we, we don't have peace. And it's because we're comparing our current reality with the reality that we were never made to compare ourselves with. So perhaps we could turn the TV off for a while. Perhaps we could stop scrolling so much and maybe... We could experience a little bit more of God's presence. Here's what the Bible says to do in this regard in Galatians 6, 4 through 5. It says each one should test his, his, their own actions. Not, somebody, not your ancestors, not, not your neighbors, not your coworkers, not the people you see on social media. That's, that's their, their responsibility. Because if you just test your own actions, then you can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry his own own load. You're accountable, responsible for yourself. Just trying to give you some tips today. The third one that, that psychologists say is, is causing so much mental illness in our society is, is, is ruminating self-talk and really negative ruminating self-talk. You take some extra notes. It's, it's negative ruminating Self-talk. We see this in Elijah. First Kings 19.10 says, uh, he replied, I have, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. This is the narrative that Elijah is telling himself in his head. I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've, they've put your prophets to death by the sword. Matter of fact, I'm the only one left. And it just isn't true. And now they're trying to kill me too. We, we, in our minds, we create some narratives. We tell ourselves, we self-talk, we ruminate on things that often aren't even true. And it leads us into this cave of, of depression. Uh, ruminating, it's actually, uh, it's what, what psychologists are now saying is the leading cause of suicide. And what, what ruminating is, ruminating is actually an agricultural term. It, it refers to animals that are ruminant animals. Uh, so cows are ruminant animals. Deer, ruminant animals. Sheep are ruminant animals. And what ruminant animals do, they have multiple chambers in their stomach. And so they can take a bite of grass here, chew it, swallow it. And then, you know, what? they, they hawk it back up, chew on it some more, swallow it, hawk it back up, chew on it some more. And you know what I found whenever I hawk food up, which 
I don't know if you've ever thrown up in your mouth and had to swallow it again. It's super gross. It never tastes better the second time. It just does it. And I'm saying the same is true of your thought life. Whenever you've had a bad experience, you hawk it back up, you reframe the narrative, it gets darker and darker until you feel like I'm the only one. Ruminant, ruminating all the wrong things and the enemy loves to get you offended. He loves to get you ruminating on all the wrong things. Uh, love, loves when you, you highlight all the wrongs around you in your life because if he can get you ruminating on all the wrong things, then you're unable to taste the goodness of God in your life in the present moment. He'd love to get you to chew on offenses, to get you bitter, what's the great commission? Love God, love people. But we're chewing on all, all that's wrong, all the offenses around us. We can't love people when we're ruminating all the wrong things that they've done and we become bitter towards them. Brian Tracy, he, he wrote this. He said, 95% of your emotions are determined by the way you talk to yourself. And so I would just invite you to ask, what, consider, what, how have you been talking to yourself lately? What's the narrative you're saying about your current circumstances and the world around you? And if you feel like, man, I, I've been in this, I've had this cloud over me, perhaps it's because you've been leading yourself there with ruminating negative self-talk. Oh, there's this guy in the Bible by the name of David. He's known as a man for God's own heart. And there's this interesting story that, that David, before he was king, like he was out with these rebels, like, like, like trying to lead this ragtag group of men. And they're out in the middle of nowhere with their wives and children. And David leads this, this team and they go, they go fight these guys, beat them up, come back, only to find that another enemy came and stole all their goods, took their wives and their kids. David's wife has been stolen. His kids have been kidnapped. And the men in the camp are like, no, David, you're responsible for this. I'm going to kill you. And, and the Bible says this interesting phrase. It says, it says, while David's processing his pain, while he's processing losing his wife, while he's processing his kids being kidnapped, while he's processing this, this rebellion rising up against him, it says this interesting phrase, David encouraged himself in the Lord. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? It's how you talk to yourself. We see it, it, it pins how he does this in Psalms. This is a Psalm of David, Psalm 43, 5. He says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Like David's like, hey, soul, what's going on? I'm feeling like I'm in this cave. Like, why are you so disturbed within me? Hey, soul, here's what you need to do. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. He's my savior and my God. And he encourages himself in the Lord. Again, Psalm 103, verse 5. Uh, it says this, I will praise, praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your sins. He heals all your diseases. He, who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things. So that your youth is renewed like eagles. I'm just saying if you don't like the narrative playing between your ears. Only you can change the mixtape. Bless the Lord. Find, find the good things going on in your life and talk about them. Because every time we rehearse the negative, it, it embeds a neurological pathway into our mind. And it never gets better. It always gets worse. And the enemy loves when that happens. 
Here's a passage we're going to be talking about in our Philippians series, Philippians 4, 8 through 9. It says this, finally, brothers, whatever is, is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. And the God of peace will be with you. Just free time out right here. Has this characterized your thought life lately? Because the Bible says, think about those things. And if, if, my, if you're like me, my hunch is a lot of us have had our thoughts on opposite. Let's make a pivot this week and say, you know what? I'm going to bless the Lord. I'm going to think about what's true, what's right, what's noble, what's pure, what's lovely, what's admirable, what's excellent, what's worthy of praise. I'm going to talk about those things. Control your mind. You control your life. The fourth thing that psychologists say are indicators that lead us into this dark place is our inability to process pain in a healthy way. This is what Elijah experienced. His inability to process pain in a healthy way led him to this place where he says, I think I'm done here. Painful experience, bad message, takes him dark. And some people feel like, you know, life should just be problem free. But, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said this in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me, not in your life, not in your circumstances, in me, you may have peace. But check this out. Here's what your experience in this world is going to be. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. This is a promise. No one gets a tattoo of this verse. But this is a promise that, that God has for us. And we just need to know that troubles are going to come. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We should know like, oh, yeah, well, we knew this was going to happen. Some people are like, hey, come on, pastor, be more positive. I'm positive you're going to have some trouble in, in this world. The question is, how do we wrestle trouble to the ground when we experience it? Here's a legitimate question that's worth you taking some time to think through. Write this question down, process it. What's your plan to process pain? When I experience trouble or pain, how will I respond? Have a game plan going into it because you will experience pain. More and more people are turning to unhealthy habits to escape pain in life, turning to drugs, alcohol, uh, binging on Netflix, hours on social media, video games to 3 a.m., all because we want to escape. We, we want to numb the pain we experience in our life, and it's often very unhealthy for us. Uh, interesting to note, when the pandemic hit in March of 2020, Drug addiction went up 18% in one month, 29% in April, 42% in May, because we don't know how to process pain. And now we're ministering to many of the effects of what happened in 2020. Interesting book to read uh, by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meeting. Uh, meaning, man's search for meaning, that is. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian neurologist, psychologist, philosopher, and author. Uh, he's also a Holocaust survivor. And after World War II, uh, Viktor Frankl opened a clinic in Austria to treat victims who survived the Holocaust. Now you think about what these patients that he's, he, he's trying to help have witnessed, what they've experienced, what they've lost. Every one of them Every one of his patients were suicidal. But Freud, uh, this prominent uh, 
psychologist, philosopher at the time had this, this theory that the goal of life was pleasure. Well, Viktor Frankl comes along and he creates a different framework, a different theory. And he said, the goal of life isn't pleasure, but purpose. And if you don't have purpose in your life, then you'll dull your life with pleasure only to find that it won't really bring you pleasure anymore. And I believe that. I believe you're not, we're not made just for the sake of pleasure. We're made for purpose. We're created on purpose, with purpose. And whenever, whenever trouble comes your way and you're, you're basing your life off pleasure, then it derails your life. But you say, no, no, I wasn't made for pleasure. I was made for a purpose. In the midst of pain, I can get up out of my bed and put my shoes on, go to work, because I know, God, you've given me a purpose. Viktor Frankl, he created this therapy called Logotherapy. And it helped Holocaust victims work through the pain and rediscover the value of living. And Viktor Frankl, his goal was really three things. And, and here we have him on the screen. This is his logo therapy. He said, number one, I need to help people find meaningful work. Meaningful work. And this is honestly, this is why we invite you to serve on teams around here. We, we want to invite you into meaningful work. Work that will make a difference for all of eternity. Listen, you're not just babysitting kids. You're helping kids find and follow Jesus. There's, what, what could be more meaningful in life than that? You're not just, you're not just greeting people on the patio. Like, like their, their perspective of God and his church will be framed by their interaction with you. And, and I'll just be very candid. Like things are operating fine without you. But they'd be operating a whole lot better with you. And you would be operating a whole lot better in life with us. I just want to invite, just join a team. Find some meaningful work and invest your life into it. Second thing Viktor Frankl wanted to do with these suicide uh, patients was, was, was to get them to do life with community of friends. To do life in the context of community. It's amazing how what works in life is just very simple biblical principles. You know, we have groups around here for this purpose. Like the Bible says we're better together. Iron sharpens iron, but you'll be better if you join a group. We have Zoom groups for those of you who live outside the state and maybe in a different country. You can, you can still jump into a group and, and do life with a community of friends. It'll help you. And the third thing that Viktor Frankl said, hey, we need to find reason, reason and purpose for your suffering. You need to find reason. What's the reason and purpose for your suffering? Well, the Bible gives us some reasons. 2 Corinthians 1, 4 through 6 says this, God comforts us in all of our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, we also, so also comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and your salvation. If you're taking notes, write this one down. There is purpose in my pain. There, listen, there is purpose in my pain. Look at me in my eyes. I want you to hear this. Some of you watching this, maybe you feel like my pain has disqualified me from service. Like after what I've done, the pain I've felt, the pain I've inflicted on others, how could God ever use me? Listen, the pain you've experienced does not disqualify you. The enemy would want you to believe that. God says, no, that pain you experience, it qualifies you for ministry so you can comfort others with the same comfort he's poured into your life. Or as Viktor Frankl put it, 
What is to give light must endure burning. Find purpose in the pain. Let's be people. God, help us as your church to understand how we can process pain. The fifth thing that psychologists say lead to this dark cave of depression is isolation and loneliness. We're the loneliest society in human history. We're more connected through technology than any generation prior, but we are also the most lonely generation than any, any generation prior. Loneliness and isolation leads to a dark cave. Uh, remember the first problem. If you're taking notes, write this one down. It's important for us to remember the first problem in the Bible wasn't sin. It was solitude. Sin enters the picture in chapter three, but solitude's the first problem that God wants to solve. Here it is in Genesis chapter two. He says, says this, he says, the Lord said, it's not good. It's not good for you to be alone. You need a helper. You need, need a community of people to surround you with, to do life with. We're not meant to do life alone. It reminds me whenever this pandemic hit in early 2020, and you, some of you were with us at the time, you remember me saying, I just don't think social distancing is the right phrase. Like I, I know what they mean. I understand the value of like not spreading germs and, and this virus, uh, but, but social distancing is actually the wrong thing we need right now. Physical distancing, yes. Social distancing, no. When you're in a dark place, the worst thing you can do is socially isolate yourself. It'll only take you darker into the cave. Elisha experienced this. You remember what he said? He told his, his servant, hey, you stay here. I'm gonna go over there. The next sentence we read is he's ready to take his life. Isolation will re- lead you to a very, very dark place. Romans 12, five says, since we are all one body in Christ, we belong to each other and each of us needs the others. We need, we're just better together. We're not just trying to like have a club. Like, no, we're, life is better in community. We're better. We're better together. The fifth, or the sixth rather, final thing. And I invite you just again, here, here's why we're going through this. When you feel like you're in a dark cave, when you feel like this dark cloud's hanging over you, just re, review this list and say, how am I doing in this? Am I surrounding myself with, with healthy people who speak life into me? Or am I living a isolated life? How am I doing with, with my thought life? What am, what's the narratives playing through my mind? How am I doing? Take some inventory. The sixth and final one is this, spiritual warfare. Now psychologists and uh, psychiatrists, they don't, they don't typically include this in their book. But I believe this is where the battles won or lost. And, and what's important in any battle, what's important for any organization, what's important for any team is to clarify who's the enemy. Because if you, if you get confused with who the enemy is, then you'll fight battles you don't need to fight. So who's the enemy? Is it Fox News? Is it CNN? Is it, who's the enemy we're up against? Well, the Bible says this, who our enemy is, Ephesians 6, 12 through 13. He says, for, for our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. Your struggle is not against anything or anyone you can see. But our struggle is against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, in the unseen realm. Therefore, put on the armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. 
Listen, you just need to know that your enemy is scheming against you. He's prowling around looking to devour you. And I'm just pleading with the church today, take a stand. Recognize that, that everything you see is not everything at play. The Bible indicates that there are, there are powerful forces that, that, that are, are making physical movements around us. It's at the root of the issue. It's not people. It's spiritual forces in heavenly places. And I just need you to hear this. You, you are not a human being having temporary spiritual experiences. You are a spiritual being having temporary human experiences. Who you are lives forever. Your body will not. Just play along with me on this one. If I came to you and I said, you know what, I got some inside information. Um, there's a very bad person that has a key to your house. And uh, he's, he's making plans. When you go to sleep tonight, uh, he's going to come in and take what's most precious to you. He's going to take your kids. And he's got plans to do terrible things to them. If, if that were a true scenario, what would you do tonight? What would you do? I can tell you what I would do. I would not be sleeping. <laughs> Matter of fact, I would be staying awake. I, I would invite my friends to come along with me, my buddies Smith and Wesson, and I would bring all their friends with me as well. You know what I'm saying? We would be ready for that. And that's why the Bible says over and over, and I think some of us just need to hear this today, wake up, wake up. You have a very real enemy. And he wants to do more than burglarize your house. He's coming to steal, kill, and destroy. First Peter 5.8 says this, be self-controlled and alert. Be awake. Your enemy, why? You're, you have an enemy. Who is it? The devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How does he do it? Well, you've seen like, he doesn't just walk out into a pack of gazelles with like a, a steak knife and a fork. No, like he, he crouches, he's sneaky. He, he, he blends in with the grass around him. And while the gazelles are just going about life, he pounces on them. That's the imagery that Peter's trying to get into our heads today. Your enemy is like that. Resist him. Run from the things that bring death. Stand firm in faith. I don't want you to live life in the cave of depression. And oftentimes we just need to remember who our enemy is. And he would love to tie your mind in knots over things that don't matter, to take you sideways over, over issues that aren't the real issue, over enemies that aren't the real enemy. But Jesus says you have authority. Jesus said in Luke 10, 19, look, I have given you authority over the power of the enemy. He's given you authority. And my, my plead with you is this, God has given us authority, but we have to use it. I don't want you to land in a dark cave. There are some very real mental illness issues out there that do require professional help. But I just invite you today to look through this list, take an inventory, because if you're like me, Oftentimes, it's ourselves that lead us into those caves. Let's pray. 
Well, Father, we just thank you today that you have given us all authority. That God, I pray that for people watching this, that they would step in and engage in the battle that's really raging around us. But it's not anything we can see, it's in the unseen realm. So Jesus, would you help us to take ground through prayer? Would you help us to take ground through, through knowing your word, through, through fasting? God, would you help, would you show us how to battle in this day and age? And Father, I, I do pray for everyone struggling with depression and anxiety today, God. You said it's for freedom that you've set us free. So God, would they not allow their mental illness to be their identity? But God, if we've led ourselves into a cave by our own actions, God, would you give us the strength, the power, the discipline through the power of your Holy Spirit to lead ourselves back out of that cave and walk in freedom, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.